Let me pray, and then we'll start. Uh, Merry Christmas, everybody. Thanks for coming this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a wise God, and you're the speaking God, so you haven't left us in the dark, stumping our toes on hard questions, and, and we don't have to construct our God. Our God is, you are personal, you are revealing yourself, you are, speak in our language. You also speak in pictures and poetry. You speak about the everyday stuff of our lives, like pain and big questions and marriage and sex and death and and stress and work. All the things that we live every day, you put your stamp on it and tell us what it's about and what it's for. And so help us to dive into your uh, wisdom and learn how to be students of it the rest of our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I made 25 copies, so some of you might have to share, uh, like one per couple, or uh, spread them around. There's a few sprinkled around here, too. So we're talking this morning about how to understand what's called the wisdom uh, books in, uh, in the Bible. It's a whole category of books. They have poetry, but they're not just poetry. They have uh, proverbs, but it's not just Proverbs, And so we're going to look at four books and uh, two parts of the New Testament that I think could probably fit under wisdom literature is the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James. Because the book of James basically says, you know God, so what? Show me. And that's basically what we're going to be looking at in terms of wisdom. But I want to ask a question about wisdom first. When you hear that word, what do you guys think of? Old man with gray beards, okay. Or bald men. Or bald men with no beards, right? Yeah. Lots of hair or no hair, right? Um, let me ask you this question. Where do you get wisdom? Where? God. Okay, from God. How many of you would vote in a school? Anybody tempted to say college? I'd say both. So you can't get wisdom at college? Why not? Get a form of wisdom. A form of it. Are there a lot of dumb people at college? Yeah. Okay, yeah, so. It's not automatic, right? And even the grown ups at college maybe aren't uh, super smart. In fact, uh, uh, Wade's doing the Psalms in a few weeks, and it says in uh, one of the Psalms, because I listen to you, God, I'm wiser than all my teachers. So there kind of goes that other one. It's like you can actually be smarter than your professors. Uh, by understanding God and thinking the way that he thinks. So that should be an encouragement to you in your youth where you think about, man, how do they know so much? Is And so basically when we come to wisdom, we're not talking about the quantity of what you know. Because obviously brainy people can be really dumb in their everyday life. Well, actually the word dumb isn't in the Bible. The word we're going to read in Proverbs is Cool, you know, a lot. So, and we wrestle at our house. If somebody does something dumb, we're not allowed to call it dumb. We call it foolish because dumb sounds like IQ. Fool, actually, we're gonna see um, who has a quality problem. And fool is actually a moral word, not an IQ point word. So we're gonna be looking at these different aspects of wisdom. That it's not just about, oh, I want to know everything there is about everything. Because when we talk about Ecclesiastes, we're going to see how that's even a problem. 
And then we're going to see about the quality of knowledge that even little kids and old people and people that never went to college can be deeply wise in ways that we can only hope to attain to. And so we're going to look at these different aspects of wisdom. So here's a quick definition uh, for wisdom. Wisdom is the moral skill of living I guess we could say a God-centered down-to-earth existence. Because a lot of people think about, well, if I go to Sunday school a lot and I go to church a lot, I'm going to have a kind of a heavenly mindset that I'll be I'll be so heavenly minded, you guys can probably finish the thought, that I'm no, what, good. earthly good, right? So you're like, well, I don't want that. Can I be so heavenly minded that I also am full of earthly good? Well, that's what the wisdom books are about. To, to think about how can I be God-centered but really anchored in everyday life and really able to talk to real people and not just talk in Bibleese or theological language, but talk to real people about real stuff, about the real God in everyday life. And so that's really the, um, the thrust of the, the wisdom books of the Bible. Growing in skill, and we're going to see this uh, as we go, especially in Proverbs. We, we want to see the difference between, between the application and information. Yeah. So we're really looking at the quality of application of what you know about God and about the real world. And we're also going to wrestle with um, revelation and observation. When we get to Proverbs, we're going to see there's a lot of Proverbs that were borrowed from the surrounding culture. You would go... Holy cow, how can anybody, oh, those pagan creeps, how can they know anything about life because they don't know God and they do lots of weird stuff and bow down to weird statues and stuff like that? How can they know anything about anything? Well, it's because we live in a world made by God and because of this thing that some theologians call common grace, meaning since God reveals himself and God blesses people, he doesn't nuke every sinner that ever sins. He lets them live. He lets them understand things. He lets them enjoy marriage and and Christmas dinner and Christmas presents. God is good that way. So people can observe things and come to a knowledge of God, but it's not enough to save them. It's enough to have them say, deal with, hey, God's here. God's doing stuff, and I'm not aware of him enough. I'm not following him enough. And so even uh, non-Christians can be very keen observers, but because they haven't keyed into Revelation, we would say, and the Bible says, that person is actually... A fool with all their information because they don't have a heart turned towards God, they can't fully understand life in its fullness and in its in its purpose. Does that kind of make sense? So if you have eyes and you have a brain, you have ears, you're taking stuff in because of God's goodness and because of the way He's made the world, you can understand God, people, and stuff to a certain extent. But because our hearts go in the wrong direction, in this fool direction, we need correction from God's revelation so we can be truly wise having that moral skill to have a God-centered life in a down-to-earth existence. Does that kind of make sense? We're going to see that in uh, Proverbs and, and Ecclesiastes. So there's four books we want to look at in the very short time uh, we have. 
that fall under the heading of uh, wisdom, and Wade's going to do Psalms. So uh, we would have had zero time to do it justice if we had to do Psalms as well. So the book of Job. For some people, this is their favorite book because they have wrestled with depression. They have wrestled with big questions about God. And uh, so we kind of see four things in Job that that, uh, we want to briefly look at, and and it's in the form of a question. The people that we meet in the story of Job are Job, his wife, his kids who are uh, killed in a terrible uh, natural disaster, and also... uh, they were also killed through, uh, I guess you could call it domestic terrorism. So he lost all his kids. Job had a wife who told him to curse God and die. So that was part of his suffering, was his wife. Um, and then he has these friends who sit with him at, at the beginning as he is literally covered from head to toe in festering sores. And the best thing about them, what was the best thing about Job's friends? Anybody that's read the book? They were there. Second awesome thing is they didn't say anything for a long time. When it went downhill is when they started talking. (laughs) Because they were coming up with all kinds of weird reasons for why Job, a really good guy, is suffering. And so this is kind of the questions we want to think about uh, as we come to this idea of God, the devil, and suffering. Is the question of Job's friends. If good people suffer, are they really good? Because their answer to Job is, well, Job, obviously, you did something bad. Because we all know that bad things happen to bad people. And good things happen to good, good people, right? That's their basic view of the world. And a lot of us, actually, maybe that's our view of the world. If you do good things, you obey God, good things will come to you. If bad things come into your life, it's because you did something wrong. We won't make you raise your hand if this, you've struggled with this. Because we've all, we've all gone through that. The short answer, my good news to you is, good people suffer not because they're bad. What would we say to that? What's the answer? What? Because they're people. And there's this other element. There's another person we meet in in Job, and who's that? Who's kind of evil personified? Satan, the devil. Satan means literally accuser. And you see him doing this in the book of uh, Job, that he comes before God and he says, look at Job. He loves you because you're good to him. What if you take everything away, even his health? Do you think he would still praise you? And God says, go ahead, take everything except his life, and we'll see. And maybe you're wrestling with that. Because you're like, what? You mean God would set me up for an experiment with the devil? I don't think I like that. Is God getting his jollies watching Job suffer? What would you guys say to that? God doesn't get jollies. Okay. (laughs) Roughly speaking, God doesn't... Yeah, and so we're wrestling with, there, there's two facts in the universe, as someone uh, wisely said. You can really understand your life. God loves you, the devil hates you. That explains almost everything, right? That's very simplistic, but that's basically what we're looking at in Job, is God loves Job, God loves his people, 
but there's pain in the world, and what is God doing with it? How many of you read to the end of Job? What kind of ending does Job have? Happy end. Happy. It says he was more blessed than he was before. He had more kids. He, he had uh, all kinds of blessings. So his life at the end was better than it was before. Well, let's move to Job's question. If good people suffer, is God really good? Is it worth pursuing righteousness? Some of you are feeling like that right now, maybe. Man, what good is it being good if you still suffer? What good is it being good if, if you're still single and you've obeyed God's uh, commandments? Gosh, where's my mate? God, I, I did really good in my homework. I didn't cheat. Where's my job out of uh, you know college? I've done everything that you've said. Where's the payoff? And we're... Most of us are really wrestling with that from time to time. Is what's the good of being good if it doesn't turn out good, right? We're really re- wrestling with that. And in one sense, it's not really sinful, but it's a question. And, the, and really, the, the, uh, that brings us to point C. Kind of our, how do we process Job and how do we use it in our lives? Some of you might have been taught that to ask God questions is equal to unbelief. Can you guys relate to that? Because <clears throat> God's the boss. What are you? Well, you're just like a servant. The servant can't talk back. The employee can't talk back to the boss. What happens to him? He gets fired, right? But who is God? Is he just the boss? Is he just the king of everything? Is he just the big guy upstairs with all the keys and all the buttons that sends lightning? No, he, he's a father to his people. He's a creator. He's a redeemer. He's a lover of his people. So what can your questions do to God? He's big enough. He can he can take it. But as the end of the book of Job tells us, you better watch out for the answer. Kind of like in a few good men. The truth. You can't handle the truth, right? <laughs> so here all through the book Job and his friends are saying God, why? God, why? God, why? What's up with this? Why are you doing this? And God says, brace yourself like a man and I will tell you. It's basically like, buckle your seatbelt, buddy, because I'm going to tell you. And basically, he just rolls out. He says, where were you when I made the mountains? Where were you when I made those sea creatures that everybody fears, uh, the things of myth and nightmares? Where were you when I hung the stars? And the answer is, I wasn't alive yet because I'm not (laughs) eternal. I'm not God. (laughs) So basically, the answer to God why, the short answer is, because I'm God. But he reveals all this goodness, even in the midst of a world of pain. And and then I want us to see just quickly, before we go to Proverbs, Job 9.33, the gospel according to Job. Here's God on one hand, a suffering man on the other. And he wants to go to court, and he wants this thing to be settled. He wants his questions of, why am I suffering to be settled? And his heart cries out, and we can almost see Jesus in the background of the picture saying, I'm coming. I'm coming as fast as I can uh, to, to settle this. Listen to what Job says. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. And here we see a picture 
of the cross, how a holy God holds on to sinful sufferers and brings them close. God just doesn't just hold us at arm's length. He comes to us, and that's what we just celebrated yesterday, and we're celebrating today, is God comes close to those who suffer as one who suffers himself. A righteous man who suffers unjustly. That's the gospel. And it's right there in Job, right in the middle of all the pain and all the questions of a believer who's who's suffering. Any questions about Job or any any comments? <coughs> Bill? I was just going to say, I like, you, I like how you moved from B to C there because um, we're not in a position to question God's goodness if we're suffering. But um, so, so some people say, well, then you're a fatalist. You just um, you, you have this stoical attitude that I need to take whatever God dishes out and have nothing to say about it. Mm-hmm. So that's not what Job gives us. It's, yeah. it's Job struggling and ultimately finding the answer, which you know the the, the fleshly mind isn't going to like. But it's it's the answer that we should be satisfied with. Mm-hmm. The, the Spirit leads us to trust Him while we struggle yeah. to trust in Christ. Yeah, I like how you put that, that we're not called to have a mute faith, kind of like just shut up and take it. We think that's kind of the honoring thing to God. This is, uh, God, I want to know you. What's up with this? His direction, I've kind of, as we've talked about the Psalms before, is not where's your location, I'm suffering. My address is depression or, or sadness or loss or singleness. What's your direction? Are you aiming towards God? to know him more about him or are you aiming away from God because it's just too hard uh, to, to trust him and I think it's good to know it's okay to ask why it's just not okay to forever stay in why because the answer to why is because I'm God because I'm good you have to ask what for what do you want from me mm-hmm. in this you know how are you going to change me so it's not just forever why, 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 why? Mm-hmm. You know, but that's not to say you can't ask why. Yeah. You just have to be okay with his answer. Yeah. Yeah, something where Israel really falls is not asking why, but starting to start accusing. Yeah. The difference between, I don't get this. Don't, this doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. God, I don't understand this. Versus, you're not good. You know, somebody, did you bring out to the desert to die? That's, that's where it's which is confusing. Yeah. Yeah, listen to, I wrote it down there on number C. Listen to what God says to Job 40, verse 8. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Job wants so hard to be proved right, he's almost going so far as it's a zero-sum game. For me to be right, God has to be wrong. But the gospel is God is right and God makes us right at his expense and so we don't have to take from God because he's giving himself he's giving us answers he's giving us grace and so God doesn't have to lose for us to win for us to be lifted up for us to be whole and and, and happy or, or joyful yeah. it's really important to note that throughout Job it says and Job did not sin in all of this so he was at the same time more innocent than his friends made it out to be and he was also more guilty than he ever thought he was at the end, he says, I'll shut up already. I've heard of you, but now I see you and I repent. 
He says, basically, I had this concept of God, I had this concept of me, and then when God speaks His revelation, the only wise thing to do is say, I was wrong. <laughs> Uncle, my right answers weren't right enough. My wrong answers, I didn't know how wrong they were. I didn't know how wrong my heart was. I need your grace. And so the ending of Job is not just a reversal of fortune, but a, a returning back to God, a repenting, which is we've been saying all along, is our basic response to God. Is God shows me where I've run away from Him, and the only solution is come back. Come back to Him, believe Him, receive forgiveness. Good stuff. Proverbs. Proverbs. Anybody know how many chapters are in Proverbs? 31. So I used to tell people, like when I was a youth pastor, people were like, I really want to read the Bible. I'm like, okay, easy one. Proverbs 30 has 31 chapters. Read one every day. I don't recommend that anymore. Because if you look at Proverbs, they are little short sayings. And the only analogy I could think of is from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. He had that magical gum. He gave it to people, and what did they do? They chewed on it. And they says, mmm, that's like roast beef. Mmm, that's mashed potatoes and gravy. Mmm, now comes the blackberry cobbler. Mmm, now comes the sherbet. Mmm, mmm. That's, that's actually how, and our kids don't know this, but you're not supposed to eat a whole pack of gum in one day. Because uh, it's not food, right? <laughs> you don't just, all my gum's gone, and I'm not full. What's up with that? Um, <laughs> Proverbs are like little tiny bites that explode in your brain, explode in your heart. So some of them are meant to be chewed on for like a whole day or a whole week or maybe even a whole month. And so to eat a whole chapter of Proverbs, you're going to barf. Um, or, or you're not going to get all the flavor out of it because you go, that was nice, on to the next one. You know, just breezing through. But these are meant to kind of go like, oh man, my head just exploded. Just to think about one for a long time. Not really in kind of a zen, like, what's the sound of one hand clapping kind of, uh, kind of proverb, but more like, what, what's it getting at? And in a second, we're going to look at one of those, and your head's going to explode, because we're going to talk about dogs and vomit and fools, and you're going to say, Ugh, man, what's up with that? But we'll see how proverbs work and, and try to work, work through it. So proverbs is laid out beautifully. Uh, as, first of all, the first section of the book is really a conversation between a mom and a dad and their boys. You say, well, what about the girls? Well, uh, Solomon uh, is a king and he's collecting these things. And he's basically raising up the dad's the king. What's he going to raise up his boys to be? Kings, Kings right? So he's saying, this is king practice. And where, when does king practice start? When you graduate king school? What's king school? Your house. King school is our home. Where, where's, the, where's the classroom? Kitchen table. Uh, everyday stuff. Potty training and go to your room and, and go pick up after the dog. All that kind of stuff is the school of wisdom. You don't get a degree. You walk upright before God in a world and are skilled at being a wise person. And it starts. And that, that really is what the Hebrew idea of wisdom was in Deuteronomy 6 where God says, there's one God, hero Israel, there's one God, love him with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, 
And how do you do that? Talk about it when you wake up. Talk about God when you go to sleep. Talk about God when you're walking to the store, when you're, when you're taking a walk around the lake, when you're walking the dog. Talk about God and His wisdom. And all of life will become a school of wisdom. That there's no big talk moments. Let's have the big talk. There's a million mini talks where God's wisdom bubbles up and it becomes practical in our lives. So if you want to think about it in a, in a picture, I'm always drawing pictures. There's a road. There's a ditch. There's a goal. There's guides. And there's companions. And there's also, we can call them sirens. Or, I don't know, comic book speak, henchmen. <clears throat> so there's a whole rich uh, thing of characters in Proverbs. And so mom and dad are the first guides. So it says, listen to your mom and dad. Bind what they say to your heart and it will go well with you. Just say, okay, I want to have a good life. So step one is, listen to your mom and dad. And hope to God that your mom and dad are wise, right? That, that's the hope, right? <clears throat> and so most of you are future mom and dads. Some of you are actual mom and dads. So you're in a great place. And Proverbs is a great book for that. And we read through Proverbs with our kids a few times. And they said, dad, it's so cool that there is a book in the Bible just for boys to make them wise to follow God. And we'll talk about girls too. But uh, they thought, wow, this is a, I can get into this. It's written just to me. It's what we do around the table. Cool. They thought of this in the Bible. We didn't make this up. This is really cool. <clears throat> so the way, we call this the way of wisdom. These off-ramps into the ditch is folly. The companions. So the first thing you're going to see in Proverbs is about peer pressure. I hate that word, but uh, peer pressure. Um, what you, Eric, you and I were talking about that? Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Fear of it. Yeah, it's basically, who's big in your life? Who do you fear the most? God or your friends? Are they going to laugh when you wear those jeans from Target? You're going to go, okay, I'm never going to buy jeans from Target. I'm going to live for the people. Uh, I'm supposed to have juicy culture or true religion or whatever the hot thing is. I gotta have that, because these people have that, and if they laugh at me, my life is over. So it's basically like, who are gonna be your companions? Who's gonna be big in your life? Who's gonna be big? Who's gonna be important in your life? Is it uh, your peers, uh, or is it God? And so it asks these big questions about what are you gonna be about, and how are you gonna respond uh, to life? Um, who haven't we covered yet? Okay, the sirens. <coughs> There's two hot ladies in this book. Their names are Folly and the Adulteress, or the Floozy, or the Red Light, the lady on the corner of the street walker, uh, Easy Lover, whatever you want to call her. So there's two ladies on uh, the bad side, and it's basically talking to young men. So it's basically, watch out, you're going to feel some things towards these ladies. These ladies say, there's nobody home, and I'm ready for love. And all kinds of cheesy R&B songs are playing in the background. Uh, uh, Lionel Richie and uh, Dancing on the Ceiling. All these kind of creepy uh, 
nasty songs. So, <laughs> wisdom isn't afraid of talking about real stuff, talking about real desires, the real pitfalls of life. But it's really neat how uh, the opposite of the sirens is these guides. So you see two other hot ladies uh, in this book. Well, actually three. Well, two. Um, one is wisdom. It says wisdom is a beautiful lady. She stands at, at the crossroads, the main intersection of the city. And she calls to the simple, which is a young man who needs to grow in wisdom. And she calls to the fool. Come trade in your foolishness for wisdom. And she says she spreads her banquet. She mixes her best wine. She spreads out a feast. She says, come and eat. And not only will you be full, but you'll be wise. And if you love me, meaning wisdom, if you walk with me your whole life, basically if you marry wisdom, the baby that's born is blessing. So it's basically, some would say, it's appealing to our lower nature or something, but it's just appealing to our nature. Basically, God not only says, don't do that, like in Exodus 20, but think of the way God appeals to us in Proverbs. A beautiful lady, like one of those beautiful elf ladies in Lord of the Rings. You like want to sing a song when you see her. She's so beautiful. But she's a dangerous kind of beautiful, because if you follow her and you love her, It'll change your life. It'll transform you. Because her words will get into your soul. It'll get into your mind. It'll start changing the way you respond. So isn't that great that God uses this very winsome, a very beautiful attraction? And the other lady is, uh, of course, he's talking to boys. He says, your wife. There's a whole chapter on a, on a beautiful, awesome wife in Proverbs 31. That's probably another uh, topic altogether. But... Uh, She's into real estate. She's, she knits. She puts things on Etsy and sells them. Um, she's very handy. She makes money with her hands. Uh, she's like Martha Stewart. Uh, so that her husband is fat and handsome, but fat because she cooks really good food with lots of butter and lots of spices, good, good things like that. Kind of like me. I'm well fed. So I'm blessed that way. So, so here's all this cast of characters. There's people saying, come over here. And really, the way wisdom is slow, and it's plotting, and guess what folly is? Shortcut. Oh, you have desires for sex? Here's a lady, she's ready for you. Shortcut. Pornography, adultery, uh, internet, all kinds of stuff. Wisdom. You have desires? Guess what? There's a lady for you. You gotta love her well. You gotta love her the rest of your life. You gotta love her when she's wrinkly and saggy. This is what wisdom is, the long-term, daily, following God, loving others, being wise uh, in the world. Any questions about it? Okay. Let's look at this Proverbs real, proverb real quick. And in like ten minutes, I'll have to cover Song of Solomon. And I really want to breeze through that one quickly, for obvious reasons. But uh, the color of Christmas is red, so it won't be a little red face, maybe. But... Uh, Proverbs, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Sorry to talk about barf on Christmas morning. Do you have any English majors here? No. Like, this is called in literature a simile. You're telling something about something in terms of another thing. So he says, 
a fool is like a is like a a dog. And folly, or his foolishness, is like eating his puke. His puke, okay. <laughs> and then there's an activity. There's eating. Okay. Let's think about that for a second. A fool is like a dog eating his puke because the fool returns again to his folly. Hmm. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats or returns to his folly. Why is that crazy? What is a dog thinking when he goes back to his vomit? Yum. Yum. <laughs> that looks like food. <laughs> the thing formerly known as food, right? And so he goes back and goes, I think I recognize this. I think I just ate this. I think I'm going to eat it again. What, what is Proverbs saying about this? The fool doesn't know that it's something that he just ate, but it's something that's just come out of him, and it's utterly disgusting. And it is now utterly worthless for food. So what is the writer of Proverbs trying to tell us about a fool returning to folly? What is the warning to us? What is the, the wisdom lesson that it wants us to internalize? It might look, it might look tasty, but you'll regret it. You'll regret it. And it's going to come up again, but you better not eat it that time. Then. So it says, basically, don't live by appearances. A fool lives by appearances. A fool has a short memory. I just say that, I think. And, and eat it. So, so basically, it's trying to think about all of the things that it's addressed in this little compact, really kind of disturbingly uh, graphic uh, example. Because this is how wisdom works. Wisdom doesn't say, think about fluffy clouds. God is like a fluffy cloud. No, it's like dogs in a puke. <coughs> Wisdom lives down here in this world where you step in stuff and where you do stuff and where you encounter disgusting stuff. And a lot of that disgusting stuff is actually coming out of you. It's coming out of the foolishness of our hearts. And so uh, God's really introducing us to ourselves. He's introducing us to the real world. And he's reintroducing us to a new response uh, that he gives through his wisdom to the everyday world around us. So basically, it takes a little bit of literary skill to think about, well, how is a fool like a dog? How is folly like puke? It, it makes you think about it in a very compact... That's why I said you shouldn't read a whole chapter of Proverbs, because it takes some time to kind of chew on it and think about it and uh, mull it over about how does the proverb actually work. And, and what is God trying to teach me? How does my heart do? Does it return to the same stuff over and over again? What do I do with that sin that I keep doing? Is there any hope for me? And there is hope for people that do the same sin over and over again. And uh, Proverbs and the rest of Scripture is uh, really, really helpful. So sorry for the stomach-turning uh, subject matter, but I thought it was pretty uh, easy to grasp. Okay, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon in ten minutes. Five minutes. <clears throat> Some uh, conservative theologians look at Ecclesiastes, and one man called it the low point of the Bible. Because it's a dark book. How many of you read Ecclesiastes? 
What's the most common word that happens over and over again? Vanity, vanity. Empty, empty. It's literally the, the word for breath. It's like a vapor. <sighs> Disappears. Like on a foggy morning, you breathe. It looks tangible, but then it then it's gone. It's the Hebrew word Abel. We know Abel. He didn't live so long, did he? Because his brother Cain killed him. So even his name meant he was only alive for just a little while. This is the most common adjective ascribed to idols. Is this vanity. They are a nothing. They look like a something, but they're a, they're a nothing. So really, Ecclesiastes is like, gosh, is this even a book for people who believe? Is this a book for just depressed poets in Berkeley uh, who just like strum their electric guitar and cry all day? I mean, what, what's this book about? Well, here's my chart of life here. You're born. You die. When you die, other people get your stuff. <clears throat> and some of those people are not nice people, and some of them are not wise people. So all the work you did, <coughs> zero. It's all right, tomorrow's Monday, go work real hard. All right, let's pray. <laughs> what is it saying? Well, he has this phrase in Ecclesiastes, it's called, under the sun. So he's basically doing a thought experiment. He says, what if we just live life and we kind of just, just for sake of argument, try not to think about the big things of God, but just, let's look at the human experience, let's be keen observers of human experience and try to piece together meaning out of the stuff of human experience, just all by itself, just the raw material of life. And he basically says, you know what you end up with? Zero. It doesn't add up because you work really hard, it goes to other people. You get really old. It, it, the very ending is very poetic. It says, uh, the mill stops grinding. It's basically saying your teeth don't work anymore. Your eyesight, does, the windows don't work anymore. Your eyes don't work anymore, you know. Your body just just fails you. So here, your body doesn't quite work well enough to hold your head upright, like we heard about baby Judah uh, last week. Uh, totally helpless, totally floppy. Um, so we start floppy and we end floppy. Uh, our strength does not last. So it's basically asking the question, to what will you give your strength? And there's some a few verses that just pop in. It says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. So it says basically, we're basically asking a question, it's on the next next page. Is meaning constructed by adding up enough life experiences, enough really good experiences? Because that's what people are really looking for in their life is, I want my good experiences to outweigh my bad experiences. I want my good works to outweigh my bad works. But when you add it all up, it eventually comes to nothing because you can't can't take it with you. And so by leading us to this point of desperation, uh, the wise man, uh, Solomon, is able to lead us to true wisdom that anything good in our life is a gift from God. So it says, love the wife of your youth, love the work, drink your wine, eat your food, enjoy the blessings from God, but be very realistic 
that they are very temporary. So don't live for your stomach. Don't live for your boss. Don't live for your job. Don't live for your resume. Remember your creator. Receive life as a gift uh, from him. And Solomon did us a big favor, he says. Point B, I call him an experiential astronaut. He went where people weren't allowed to go because most people didn't have the luxury. But Solomon, the wisest and richest man in the world, he could have any woman he wanted. He could have any recreational drug he wanted. He could have any book that had ever been written at his disposal. And he says, I tried pleasure. I tried women. I tried books. I did it all, guys. Trust me. And what does he say? Vanity. So he says, spare yourself the trouble. Learn from my experience. You don't have to live this route of, of seeking the next experience and the bigger experience. I've been there, and it ends up zero. Remember your creator. Receive the good things of life as a gift from him, and trust him, and respond to him. I've got like one minute for Song of Solomon. <laughs> Yeah. <clears throat> and maybe I did what I said wasn't good uh, historical responses one too hot to handle um, so guys like Origen and Jerome and even Augustine thought about this book isn't about sex it's about something else so the romance the lovely lady the handsome man ooh la la all that is pointing somewhere else so let's as fast as we can find the something else because this is creeping me out. Um, so we would say, no, God, and people didn't invent sex. The devil didn't invent sex. Hugh Hefner didn't invent sex. God did. So it's a good thing. So we shouldn't rush past it. It's something that he made uh, for marriage, and we can uh, look at it and experience it with thanksgiving. The second response in history was, it's all about Jesus. So the refrain of, where is the one whom my soul loves? So uh, a lot of the Reformation interpreters and some of the early church fathers said, this is basically the soul search for Jesus. Where is the beautiful one that my soul loves? Let me find him. And so, I mean, we would say, that sounds awesome. I can handle that. That doesn't quite creep me out as much. I don't blush as much. Let me find out in this love story how I can pursue the one who loves me. I might just interject. There's a, I think there's a, sort of a waning hangover from from the earlier guys that you mentioned to the Reformation guys, waning uh, Gnostic or Platonic mm-hmm. hangover. Because yeah. the body doesn't feel quite as spiritual as the soul or the spirit, right? But what does God say about uh, marital sex? And the two shall become one. There's something physical that becomes deeply spiritual. And that's what's so beautiful about these books, is... Uh, i got to give you one other literary term real quick before I let you go. It sounds like a dirty word, but it's not. It's the word uh, chiasm. <coughs> so now you're listening. Okay. Um, chi is the, is the Greek letter X. So one of the ways that we know that, that the book of Song of Solomon is all one book and it's all one piece of literature and isn't just slapped together kinky love poetry is that... The use of words brings us to a center point. So to use different terms that mirror each other. So in class you learn about A, A prime, B, B prime, that there's kind of an echoing of words, and then you have 
and then it flips. I can explain it better at a later time. But basically, right at the middle of, this is the first part of the book is pursuit. The middle part of the book is the honeymoon, consummation. And then the rest is basically the trials of love. You thought singleness was lonely? What about when you have a fight in marriage? That's super lonely. You live in the same house and you feel like you're a million miles away. So it talks about uh, these kind of the trials of love after uh, consummation. But let me look at uh, three and then uh, then B. So I would say uh, this really is about a real couple who loved each other and got married, pursued each other and dreamed about each other and couldn't wait to be together physically and spiritually. And so you hear, I mean, think about it. A whole book of the Bible about the stuff we all dream about and the stuff we all wish for. And even when we have it, we wish for more. We wish for something deeper. We wish for no sadness to be in this beautiful garden of love in which there's just two of us and then God smiling over it. So this is deeply holy. It's deeply beautiful. It's, it's very sweet. But as we see in these verses I've, I've printed for you is contrary to our own desires and contrary to our culture, sex is not a destination. Sex is a, is a sign. And this makes my wife sad. In heaven, we won't be married. We'll just be Sean and Nancy. Bummer, right? You know what God's saying? He says, trust me on this. There is something better than sex. And I'm preparing it for you. And we're going, I'm going to have to trust you on that one because I can't think of anything better than that. I will trust you, God. So basically what he's saying is everything that, that sex is picturing, the, the pursuit and the having one another and feeling close and feeling like we are melted into one, we were built to be that way, not in a sexual way, but in a deep way. We are meant to be that with God. And even as we see in Revelation 21 too, it says, I saw the new Jerusalem, literally the capital city of the new world that God's building, coming down out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Heaven and earth will one day be married. God won't be up there and we're down here. God will be right here with us. And we will be radically new people. And we will love as we have been loved. And that's what it's about. So what does it mean? Should we just like shoot ourselves so we go to heaven? Because sex doesn't matter. Bodies don't matter. No, 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 please do not. Do not do that. Suicide is not the answer. And getting out of our bodies is not the answer. The answer is for God to transform everything so that there is nothing separating us and God. And sex pictures that. And it's a pointer towards something greater. What if you could never be separated from God and you had a hard time telling where God stopped and you started that's what we were built for. That kind of unity, that kind of intimacy, that kind of rapturous joy is what we were made for. And that is what God is pointing us towards uh, through the wonderful signpost of sex. And so God, in one sense, gives sex to us as a gift, and he also saves sex from being a God by teaching us in the Song of Solomon and the rest of Scripture how to have God be God. And that's deep wisdom. And the wisdom books of the Bible aren't afraid to do that and teach that to us. So... We're out of time, but thanks uh, for listening. And You've got Bibles, so if you don't, talk to us. We'll get you one. Uh, if you don't understand it, talk to us. We'll help you. And we're doing a lot of these classes, so it'll help you.
as well. Go in his peace.